Why don't we go ahead and start with a prayer in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, so it's good to see there's a crowd here. Um, the advertisement said there'd be a question and answer. Uh, we're going to have some questions and answers towards the end of the talk. Um, but this is going to be a presentation, one that if you've been paying attention to my preaching, let's say over the course of the past several months, you're going to hear uh, certain hints uh, of what I've already said. It's not going to come as a surprise because a lot of it applies to this topic of gender, which tends to be uh, very popular in the media and today. I can tell you right now, this talk is probably not going to be what you expected. Um, maybe the questions and answers will be what you expected, but the talk may not be. And a lot of what this talk is about comes from uh, some things I've read recently. Um, one of them was a book called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. We get into a lot about the book by a scholar named Carl Truman. And he's trying to look at sort of the, the contemporary understanding of gender and sexuality that we have, not making so much a critique of it, but trying to understand how we got to where we are, how we got to this understanding of gender fluidity, uh, of the body's relation to gender, of politics in relation to sexuality. And he does a great job, I think sort of putting it together in a book, which is academic, but fairly accessible. But he says that there are a lot of ideas, there's a genealogy that leads to where we're at today. And so rather than giving sort of a representation of the book, I'm taking some of his ideas and attempting to reframe in a way, in a way that we might be able to, to understand and integrate a little bit better. And I'm going to give you a quote from his book that I think sort of sums it up. And this is going to be some, and it's not a clock, our brains are maybe a little slow, mine in particular. Uh, I'm going to do my best to explain it. Uh, there's going to be some philosophy, some theology used. If there's some, a point where you don't understand something I'm saying, please feel free to raise your hand. So this is what Truman says. Trend, quote, quote, transgenderism is a symptom, not a cause. It is not the reason why gender categories are now so confused. It is rather a function of a world in which the collapse of metaphysics. Metaphysics is sort of like the transcendental, the spiritual, that which lies beyond the physical world. We're going to talk a little bit about that. Universal categories, uh, philosophical concepts. The collapse of metaphysics and of stable discourse no longer ability to discuss anything with anyone. You get canceled, you get shut down if you're disagreed with. Has created such chaos that not even the most basic of binaries, that between male and female, can any longer lay claim to meaningful objective status. Objective meaning existing outside of your mind or your own personal emotional states. Sort of like this, this podium exists objectively outside of me. And the roots of this pathology lie deep within the intellectual traditions of the West, unquote. So his claim is, is that if we're going to really understand the confusion we have today, we are going to have to go back 
to understand some of the philosophy, the politics that have led to where we are today. And I'm going to do that, but I'm going to do it in a manner of addressing a number of different concepts. If you look at the board there, you're going to see that I have a series of concentric circles. In the middle is gender. We're going to get to gender and our sort of postmodern contemporary understanding of gender. But in order to do that, we're going to have to see our concept of gender situated within larger concepts or understandings that influence that. The major one, the first one we're going to look at, is the one on the outer rim. That's a reality of creation. How we perceive of reality and creation is going to impact ultimately how we look at gender. Then it's going to be our concept or understanding of our bodies, particularly our bodies is either biologically male or biologically female. And then finally, what's the whole purpose of Truman's book is an understanding of the concept of self. What does it mean to have our self, our identity today as maybe compared before? And so what my challenge is, is for y'all, for all of us, I'm going to reduce it pretty simple um, to make sure that we can all kind of understand what's going on here, is we're going to sort of look at two different ways of viewing reality, the body, and the self. And then we're going to start thinking, well, how do I view those? What, what do I see them as a, as a human, as a thinker, as a Christian, as a Catholic? And then finally getting down to gender and then really kind of putting everything together. So I'm not going to really get into the politics of it. I'm not here to critique gender theory. And in fact, I'm not even trying to make any value judgment right now. I'm a Catholic priest of the Catholic Church. You know where I stand on these things. But I'm not, I'm trying to be fair and help us understand why we are where we are today without making any kind of judgments or getting any kind of fight. Okay? Make sense? We're simply trying to be here to understand. So, the first outer rim is the, the conscience-centric circles is reality or creation. And, and I've talked about this before. There are generally two ways of looking at reality or looking at the world around us. One way is what we're going to call the sacramental way, where creation, the world, and our body situated within the world has a meaning that lies beyond itself that creation reveals a deeper mystery. We can see that God created the world. There's purpose, there's order in the world. And that all we need to do is use our reason, sort of inspired by grace possibly, to be able to perceive God beyond the created realities. We call it a sacramental perspective. where the world has meaning in and of itself. This is a metaphysical approach. The world, reality, is physical, but we're claiming, or this claim of the sacramental worldview, is that there is something meta, beyond the physical world, the spiritual, the, the, the transcendental, the, the, the meaning that I can look at something and see it as a purpose, an end to itself. It's not a random product of evolution, that God has instilled a purpose. There's an order to creation. There's a meaning to creation. There's a meaning to our lives. The opposite worldview that we're going to call is nihilism. N-I-H-I-L-I-S-M. Nihilism, from the word meaning nihil or nothing in Latin, means that there's no spiritual, there's no transcendental, 
There's no metaphysical. All we have is the world as we see it. It is mathematical res extensa. It is biological material. There's no significance. Why? Because there's no God. There's no purpose to anything inherent and written into it. All it is is material there for us to be able to manipulate, to be able to control, to be able to possess. If it has any meaning, we put meaning on it. There's no archetypes written into creation. We impose it upon it. And so, yeah, there can be meaning in the world. We could say there's meaning to the body, there's meaning to society, there's meaning to creation, but it's not inherent in it. It's not metaphysical. It's something that comes from the outside. And the two different ways we're looking at it is we want to give meaning. The sacramental worldview says that we use our reason to understand meaning as it is revealed to us. This is the Greek term mimesis. We look at it and we can say, oh, there's a meaning there. I need to respect that meaning. I need to, to work in accord with the purpose. The opposite is poesis. Where there's no meaning, I'm going to take my meaning and put it upon it. If I say this is what the human person is about, this is what the human person is about. If I say in this society the tree is, has this purpose or has this meaning, it has that meaning. But it can change according to societies, according to individuals. It is all relative. And so, this is two different ways of viewing the world. One where we take the meaning from it, or one where there is no meaning. And that if we're going to have any meaning, we have to impose meaning upon it. There's no nature, there's no purpose, there's no metaphysics. We live in a purely empirical world. There's nothing solid, as it were. If you're going to look at the, the sort of the, the philosopher that typifies this, it's going to be Friedrich Nietzsche, or Nietzsche, however you want to pronounce it, the German philosopher of the latter part of the 19th century, who, brilliant man, but saw the philosophical tradition and said, if there's no God and that there's no, the mind has that ability to know the truth, why are we even believing there's truth? Why are we believing there's purpose? If there's purpose, I, we as humans need to make purpose. There's no meaning to the body. There's no morality. We make morality. And so that's one worldview. And the other one, of course, is the sacramental worldview. A lot of how you're going to perceive gender, or how a lot of individuals will perceive gender, goes a lot back of how they perceive reality as a whole. Is something that is solid. There is something written into it, or it is liquid, as we'll talk about, where depending on the time or the person or the place, the meaning is fluid. It can change. Does this make sense to y'all, these two different worldviews? Granted, you could say, Father, that's a false dichotomy. There are other types of worldviews, possibly, but this is what it comes down to. Either the world has inherent meaning put there by God, or there's no meaning, and we've got to make it for ourselves. And, and clearly, a Christian is going to fall on a certain side of that. And I probably shouldn't have explained to you what side we fall on. But then we go down further, that in reality, in creation, in material creation, we have bodies. Yes, we have animals who have bodies, we have mammals who have bodies, we have all these different creatures, they have bodies. But here we're specifically talking about the reality of the human body. Human body. And what is going to be a proper understanding or a concept of our human bodies. I've talked about this before, is that 
we can have two different perspectives. And the first perspective is one that is probably somewhat allied to the sacramental perspective. That even though we have bodies, bodies are not our possession. They don't belong to us. Now, this recorder belongs to me. It exists outside of myself. But in a real sense, I am my body. And in my body, uh, my interior state, whether you believe I have a soul or not, or my mind or my emotions are going to be revealed through the body, through my language, through my body language, through the way I comport ourselves. So we are our bodies. It's part and parcel of who we are. Part and parcel of who we are. Is it biological? Yes. Is there genetic material there? Absolutely. Are the bodies, in a certain sense, a product of evolution? Yeah, we've gotten here. A lot of it has come as a result of evolution. But the point is, is our bodies have a certain givenness. What do I mean by givenness? That we, in creation, being born, we are given our bodies. You know, if I'm really tall, I necessarily can't make myself short. There are certain characteristics that cannot change. I can't say, I don't like my body, therefore I'm getting rid of it to get a new body. I can say, well, I don't like my hairdo, well, I, and then maybe I can redo it. Or I don't like my, my skin tone, so I'm going to put some, some, I don't know, some cream on it or something. There are certain parts of my body that can change, but I can't get rid of it. There's a certain givenness to it because I am my body. And then within that body, there are certain limits inherent in it. I can't fly by myself. I can't put my hand in fire without pain coming. I can receive pleasure in my body, but there's gonna be a point where I cannot be fully satiated because my body is finite. I can't continuously receive and grow. There are limits written into the body. And, and while others will see, may see this as a bad thing, we don't have to see it as a bad thing. It's part of who we are. It's this creation. It's realities is given to us. And we can look at that body and we can see that there are certain purposes to it. That our eyes have a purpose. Our ears have a purpose. But probably the most significant understanding of what purpose or meaning or even limits in a body is comes the reality that man and the human person exists in a binary. It's male and female. Biologically. Biologically. Granted, there's intersex individuals. Very small percentage of individuals who, because of a result of, of, of chromosomal mishaps, come and there's some confusion there. But that's not a third sex. It's like saying certain people were born with 11 fingers. Does it mean that the norm isn't that you have 10 fingers? No. The norm is humans have 10 fingers. The norm biologically is that we have bodies that are either male or female. All the way down to your, your chromosomes, the very, the written XYXX. And the reality that the XX chromosome body, the female body, is going to produce certain gametes. Eggs. The male body cannot produce that. This is a biological fact. In the same way, the body that has the XY chromosome is going to produce sperm, that gamete. 
A female body cannot do it. As we can see, you, you can have what they call a sex change, but you're not going to change the chromosomes. You're not going to give a biologically female body the ability to create sperm. Or the biologically male body to be able to create eggs. You can have accidental changes, but our masculinity or our femininity on a biological level is something that is given to us. And there's a philosophical way of looking at this. We talked about it last weekend. Is that me existing as a biological male, one who received, as we'll talk about more about it later, an influx of testosterone in my mother's womb, I have a certain way of existing in the world. Those who are biologically female have another way of existing, of approaching, of encountering the world in their bodies, one that I will never be able to experience, and that the female body will never be able to experience the male body part. There are two different ways of being a body in the world, which shows that I don't, you don't, none of us encapsulate the entirety of what it means to experience reality in ourselves. It's a limit. It's a limit. And that limit can be seen as something bad, but it can also be seen as something good. And so, sort of summing up this first perception of the body, and I'm spending a lot of time on it because I think it's very important, is the, the part that sees the body as good is revealing a deeper spiritual meaning, and that there are purposes, what we call telos, written in the body. The penis um, and the male body has a telos. It is ordered towards the vagina. The vagina is ordered towards the penis in a biological sense, but also in a much deeper sense for the gift of self. In the sexual act, it's not just something purely biological. There's a deeper meaning that we can read into it. And to see that the body also has the capacity to generate life. That is something that is put there as the deeper meaning, the metaphysical meaning, that we can perceive. So it's not just, well, the penis is there as a random uh, product of evolution. Maybe evolution guided it, but there is a purpose inherent that is metaphysical. So I I'm going to quote from Pope Francis. Um, and this is a rather long quote, but pretty self-explanatory. It's actually from his document, Laudato Si, the one on the environment. I don't want to bore you with long quotes, but I think it's, he sums it up much better than I can. The acceptance of our bodies is God's gift is vital for welcoming and accepting the entire world as a gift from the Father and our common home. And so we look at the world in that metaphysical perspective. Wait, creation is a gift. It's given to us. My body is a gift. The givenness of the body. And I can be thankful that I've been given that gift and I can see the creation is revealing God's giftedness to us. Whereas thinking that we enjoy absolute power over our own bodies turns often subtly into thinking that we enjoy absolute power over creation. And so this idea that, well, I can do whatever I want with my body. My body is, is an object outside of me. I can control it. I can manipulate it. We're going to see that, that other worldview. Well, if I can do it with my body, because my body's part of creation, I can do it to creation. I can manipulate it. I can use it for my own selfish purposes. Learning to accept our body, to care for it, and to respect it, its fullest meaning, 
is an essential element of any genuine human ecology. The idea that we can look at ecological systems, but the human is part of that, that, that ecology. It's not just rabbits and squirrels and fish. We're part of it too. We're part of it too. And so we need to respect that human ecological balance. Also valuing one's body in its femininity or masculinity is necessary if I'm going to be able to recognize myself in an encounter with someone who is different. That's what I'm saying there. We don't encapsulate the entirety of what it means to be human. There's something that's different, a different way of being human, a way that in a certain sense, we would say, complements each other. In this way, we can joyfully accept the specific gifts of another man or woman, the work of God, the creator, and find mutual enrichment. It is not a healthy attitude which would seek to cancel out sexual difference because it no longer knows how to confront it. Can't cancel out sexual difference. Because what that does is, it says that in myself, I am my totality. I don't need another way of being human. And so that's a really sort of prideful, narcissistic way of approaching oneself and approaching the world. You can't cancel out sexual difference. You really can't because it's something that's inherent in the body. So what's the other option? The other option is one we could call sort of neo or pseudo-Gnostic. Gnosticism was a heresy in the early church that basically saw created reality as something bad. You can also call it pseudo-Manichaeism, however you want to do it. Created reality is bad. And we need to, in a certain sense, transcend that created reality. Now, of course, that sort of implies there's a spiritual dimension. You could also say another subset of that is all there is is biology. There's no meaning at all. There's nothing to transcend. There's no spiritual reality there. But basically, whether you see it as complete biology or as some sort of a Gnostic approach that the spiritual needs to be valued more than the body, and the created reality is bad, it all entails a rejection of the goodness and the givenness and the reality of the body and biology. The limits that are inherent in it. The reality of sexual difference and because you're denying metaphysics, the, the denial of a purpose in the body or metaphysics or, or any sort of transcendent reality, any spirit, any soul, any moral life or what we call a human nature. That if we all share the same human nature, that means that we need to treat each other the same. We treat all humans the same. If we're all individuals and there's no shared human nature, then there's no universal morality because we can't apply the same rules to all of us. And so you're going to see, and often the subset that does not see any spiritual or metaphysical reality, that that body can be discarded. The body is just a product of evolution. It doesn't have a weight. It, in a certain sense, needs to be overcome. Why? Because, in that concept, because there's no meaning in creation, we have to make our own meaning. And how do we make our own meaning? Or what gives our life meaning? It's got to be freedom. Freedom, freedom to make meaning, freedom to choose what we want, freedom to find happiness, 
freedom to live out my own existence as an individual. And anything that limits that freedom is bad. And so this concept is not so much a denial, a focus on denial of the body, but a focus on freedom is what we call autonomy. Autonomy, I can choose to do what I want, when I want, how I want. Anything, even my body, sexual difference, human nature, purpose, metaphysics that limits it, needs to be discarded. I need to be free to choose to be who I want, when I want, where I want, because there's no meaning in the world. There's no meaning in anything. I determine what is meaning. I am the ubermensch. I'm the one who imposes my will. And so this is the attitude that a lot of people have. And it comes down to freedom. Freedom seen as autonomy. Now, the sacramental view will say, hey, you know what? There are limits inherent. There are rules inherent in creation. And by following that rules, we're not limiting our freedom. We're actually living to the greatest potential. And I use, use this, this is, I'm not going to get into freedom as a whole, but I use this analogy. Who is more free? The individual who goes to the piano who knows nothing of music and just hammers out a bunch of notes, or the person who knows music and goes and plays a beautiful Mozart you know, piece. Well, you could say, if you believe freedom is autonomy, oh, it's the person who just goes out there and hammers it out. How many of you want to listen to that? No one does. The rules help us, the rules of music, of notation, of harmony, help us, we follow them, not only produce beautiful music, but allow for creativity rather than just cacophony and chaos. That's why we believe the rules inherent. Someone brought this up. One point believes, one perception, the sacramental perception, believes in incarnation. That it's good to be in a body, carne, flesh. The other is excarnation. We want to escape the body. We want to escape the restraints so we can be who we choose to be. And so the body becomes, let's say, a, a ghost body. A ghost body. Now, I quoted Pope Francis. I'm going to quote Pope Benedict here, another rather long quote. There's not going to be any other long quotes, so just bear with me here. But Pope Benedict sums it up. He says, people dispute the idea that they have a nature. It's a human nature. That there are rules, purposes written in the body given by their bodily identity that serves as a defining element of the human being. They deny their nature and decide that it is not something previously given to them, but that they make it for themselves. According to the biblical creation account, being created by God as male and female pertains to the essence of the human creature. Sexual difference is essential. This duality is an essential aspect of what being human is all about as ordained by God. This very duality, something previously given, is what is now disputed. The words of the creation account, male and female, he created them, no longer apply. So it's, it's a denial of the body, but specifically it's a denial of the sexed body on a biological genetic level. No, what applies now is this. It was not God who created the male and female, Hitherto, society did this. Now we decide for ourselves. So yes, I as an individual can decide what it means to be male or female, but otherwise on a societal level it becomes a social construct. I'm sure you all are familiar with that, that idea. 
Man and woman as created realities as the nature of the human being no longer exists. Man calls his nature into question. From now on, he is merely spirit and will. The manipulation of nature, which we deplore today where our environment is concerned, now becomes man's fundamental choice where he himself is concerned. Oh, you better not manipulate and destroy the forest, but you can do it to your own body. That's okay, because it's an expression of that interior will and the dominion that you have over created reality. From now on, there is only the abstract human being who chooses for himself what his nature is to be. Man and woman in their created state as complementary versions of what it means to be human are disputed. But if there is no preordained duality of man and woman in creation, then neither is the family any longer a reality established by creation. The body is a reality established by creation. We have to make our own meanings as individuals, as cultures, or as societies. But here's the thing, though. Notice what we're talking about, this idea that nature, the body, creation can be manipulated. It's there to be manipulated because it has no purpose. This has philosophical roots going back to Francis Bacon, but you can think about it all you want, but it's really only in the 20th and the 21st century that we have the ability to do it. You know, we have the ability to... to, to to use, to, to stop the body from being able to bring forth life. We have the ability to change certain things and give chemical hormones. We have the ability to, to splice human genes in monkey genes. Technology and science, which is not bad in of itself, enables all of these things to be possible. If we didn't have the advances of science and technological advances, this would all be theoretical. But we've become, we used to tell you this in theology, instead of homo, meaning man, pontifex is the bridge builder, where we build a bridge from our world to the transcendental world, we become what is known as homo, do you understand me? Homo faber. Faber, we want to fabricate. We make our own existence. We create our own meaning. We're not making the bridge to the transcendental the bridge to that which is revealed. And so the ultimate expression of this, and you think I'm crazy, is transhumanism. The movement where there's this desire to somehow see the human, because there's no metaphysical reality, we're a wet machine, the brain's a wet machine, and to be able to somehow integrate humanity with the computer or AI, where we go beyond our humanity and the effort to somehow live forever. We want to continue, we're going to download our brains into a chip to a planet in a cyborg body where we're never, it's all to escape death, which of course is the ultimate limit in the body. All right, enough about the body. We need to go to bed now, but the last level before we get to gender is self. And this is what Truman's book is really about. It's not about sex. It's about the human concept of self. So what we've seen here is if reality doesn't have meaning, if sexual difference in the body is not inherent meaning, we give it to it, we give it to it, what I feel or what I think matters, what we've seen is what we call the subjective shift. Subjective is the difference between objective. Objective is this thing exists outside of me. 
It is a reality that I have to learn to accept. It is a givenness. Subjective is that which exists inside of me, how I feel or perceive the world. It may not be how the world really is, but this is my own interior state. And so what happens here is, when the subjective trumps the objective, how I feel about who I am and what I am matters more than what the givenness of my body is. It matters more than what the givenness of creation is. I determine. Society determines. The subjective culture determines what meaning is. And the way this is lived out in this subjective experience is an expression of radical individualism where the human is not necessarily part of a given solid structure in creation, a given solid structure of, of a civilization. I exist completely autonomously. I'm cut away from community. I'm cut away from reality. I'm cut away from any kind of moral structure. And I decide what is true. And so as one sort of philosopher, commentator in society talks about it, is... Man then becomes primarily psychological. What goes on in my interior state, in my mind, in my heart, with my feelings, with my emotional state, that's what matters. And so I'm not saying that psychology is that, or not at all. But we're almost reduced to that. That the psychological interior states are constitutive of my identity. If my body's not, if there's no meaning in the world, then how I feel is who I am, is who I am. And so he calls it expressive individualism. I am an individual. I am free to express my individualism as I want. So freedom is there. It's complete autonomy. We could also say this performance. Huh? Life is a performance. I'm not there to be formed. I'm there to perform. This is who I am. I'm maximizing my freedom. But what ends up happening as a result of the influence of Freud, that psychological state, that interior emotional state that is constitutive of your identity, becomes something primarily sexual. We're sexual beings. And that expressive individualism becomes something primarily sexual. So sexual freedom becomes the norm. I should be free to find sexual pleasure, to be able to enjoy it as I want. And so the body really does become an object. The body becomes an object for my own sexual pleasure. There's no, so regardless, there's no purpose written in the body. The body exists for the, the pleasure it can afford to me through my senses. And so our own sexual state, our own sexual identity becomes constitutive of my identity. How I feel is more important than what I am. And as Truman will say, here becomes the problem. If I criticize your sexuality, the way you choose to express it, the way you act, I'm actually attacking you. That's the issue. You can come and say, well, this person is, I am committing a theft, I'm robbing. You shouldn't do that. Okay, maybe I shouldn't. No one's going to say, how dare you call me a thief? You're attacking my identity. But what's happened is, is sexuality now, instead of being something you do in your body, 
something that is there to has a purpose for procreation or whatever, it ultimately comes, and it's much more complicated than this, who I am. And if you criticize any part of it, it's hate speech. Because you're criticizing my identity. You're limiting my freedom, and that will not be tolerated. And so this concept of the self is sort of disembodied, but yet still sexual. I guess that's kind of the irony there. And one that has the right and the duty to express itself, you can see how it hones down on gender. All these three different things that we've talked about all come back to this idea of gender. Now remember, if you make the distinction, sex, biological sex is something written in the body, gender is my own subjective experience. So I may, in a biologically male body, and this is, this is valid, feel like my own personal subjective experience is in accord with that. But there are individuals, call them transgender, or you could say that, hey, they experience gender dysphoria, that for whatever reason, it could be a number of different reasons, even though they may be biologically male, oh, wait a second, no, that's, that's not the way it is. I inside feel that I'm female, so that's who I really am. My subjective experience of gender trumps the givenness of my body. And in fact, in a certain sense, it's, it's come to the point where there's a denial of biological sex. Oh, this is the, the sex assigned to you at birth. Well, because we're noticing it. In 99.98%, they align. There's not some sort of a biological discord there. With, a, with an intersex individual. But so, the body doesn't matter if there's no nature, if the self is all that matters, and we can't have the body impose any limit, it must be overcome. The body must be overcome, and sexual difference must be overcome. Because it's just another way for men to oppress women. So Marxist critique you could make of that. But the subjective emotional state is the most important. And my gender is subjective. And it's also fluid. There's nothing, I can't even say that I'm always going to be one. I can be one tomorrow. I can be pansexual. I can be whatever. It becomes gender fluid, gender queer. I don't even know where I am. The binary is destroyed. And that pulls us away from reality. And again, I could be this one day because my subjective state always experience, changes. I could be something different the next day. So gender becomes something that is not going to restrict you because it's your subjective experience. And then I can use technology to change my body to be in accord with how I feel. Even though the reality is probably the way you feel if it's not in accord is maybe a lack of too much testosterone or a lack of estrogen or too much estrogen or a lack of testosterone. It could be a number of different chemical and biological things, but none of that matters. What matters is how you feel. Even if you're a 10-year-old child, you have a right, if you feel that you're transgendered, to go and get on hormones that will block puberty and have elastic effects in your body. And you can do it outside of what your parents want. And this gets into the legal aspect of it, but this is how much we've seen that gender as a subjective sexual state is what trumps everything else. So, and that's the thing, even with the Equality Act, they're trying to move towards this idea that, that, you know, gender is the same as sex or as race. 
but it's not. It's something subjective as an experience. It's not something that is a given. So it's somewhat apples and oranges. But in our world where there's no truth, there's no objective reality, what you feel trumps everything else. And so if you want to understand how we got to where we are, this liquid subjective sense where what I feel I am in my gender trumps everything else, this is the genesis of it. And so the other perspective of gender, just like the other ones, is that, hey, so we do have our own subjective experience, but the body trumps it. Instead of making our body in accord with how we feel subjectively, we should make our subjectivity in accord with what our body is and what is given to us. Now, I'm not a doctor. There can be all kinds of discussions about this, but it's two different ways of viewing the world, the body, and our own experience of it. 40 minutes of explaining all this. I'll say, Paul, this is way too much. I didn't didn't bargain for this. How, How do we as Christians, though, understand this? So notice I haven't really mentioned God, I haven't mentioned Jesus, haven't mentioned the Bible, even though we can say that there's some sort of a spiritual dimension to that sacramental vision. How do Christians understand this? And this is something very important for us to understand. It comes back to Jesus. It comes back to the incarnation because Christ reveals man and woman to his or herself. We believe that fundamental teaching of the Incarnation, that God, purely spiritual, broke into the creative world, the created world and took on a human biological body and a human nature along with his divine nature. And so the body creation is good. It does not need to be overcome. But the reality is true. So Christ takes on the body. He keeps his body. It's a real body, not a ghost body. But he becomes incarnate as a biological male. This was not an arbitrary decision. As Christians, we don't believe the Trinity was up there just flipping a coin to say, is the son going to become a man or a woman? No. There was a definitive revelatory significance in it. Christ, in taking a male body with an XY chromosome in every single cell and with male gametes, and gonads, why does he have a male body? It wasn't random, it's because in his male body he reveals, sacramentally as it were, the fatherhood of God, the generative power of God. It has a meaning. And so if Christ's body and his sexual difference has a meaning, then in particular if you understand the mystical marriage he has to the church, the ecclesia which is feminine, then you can't disregard the body. You can't, as Christians, disregard sexuality. And you can say, well, the things could change. Oh, problem. Christ died. He overcame that final limit. And now he's risen, resurrected, never to die again in a male body. Sexual difference matters. The body matters. Because it's in the body and accepting the givenness of the body that Christ overcomes that final limit. And he's going to keep that body, that male sexed body, for all eternity. For all eternity. And so as a result, it makes us step back and say, ooh, we're going to take our body pretty seriously as Christians. Pretty seriously as Christians. It's not something we can disregard. Others who have a flawed 
understanding okay. of anthropology. I found this on the web for Hey Siri's Things Christians, oh. Pretty Serious Expressions. <laughs> <laughs> oh, look. Sorry, Siri. Um, so that's going to be on the recording. It'll be pretty funny. So for Christians, our dogma, what we believe of who Jesus is, what the incarnation is, the resurrection, matters. I was having a discussion with this very well-educated individual the other day, and I was asking him, the bishop, who's a smart friend of mine, he says, we need to learn dogma. You've got to know who Jesus is, because if you don't understand who Jesus is, you don't understand who man is. You don't understand anthropology. If you don't believe in the resurrection or the incarnation, then you're not going to understand the body. You're not going to understand sexual difference. You're not going to understand anything. We as Christians believe these things. These are dogmas. They're not just theories, but they have to have some traction in our world. And so it's going to impact other areas. The body as an objective reality, creation as something that is given, that I'm part of it, is more important than how I feel. Or what I think. I can think all all I want. But if it's not in accord with the realities it is, then it doesn't work. It doesn't work. It's just just narcissism. It's the world to revolve around me. Instead of, wait, I need to conform myself to the world outside of me. I need to be grounded in reality. And so as I talked about this weekend, we can make these distinctions. As Christians, we believe the objective truth of creation matters more than our subjective feelings and perception. Reason is more important than emotion, because it's with our reason that we can perceive order and structure and meaning. The solid is more important than the liquid. Tradition is more important than how I feel today or the way societies change. And the real is more important than the virtual. The point is, y'all, it's all interconnected. It's all interconnected. So if I, at any level there, say, ah, I believe gender is fluid, or I believe that my expressive individualism trumps my body, or I don't believe the body is important, or I believe that we can't know the truth, then it all sort of falls apart. But there's a bidirectionality there. If I believe in these Christian truths, oh, then i got to believe the other things downstream. If I believe that Christ really became God and the body really matters and reveals something, then, then I'm going to have to have a different concept of my personal objective experience of gender in relation to my body. It's not something the world's going to understand. And I guess that's the question. How do we respond? For those who believe as Christians and Catholics, and even non-Christian Catholics, that we're grounded in reality, the body means something, how do we deal with these gender questions? First, man, we've got to be loving and compassionate. Going and being a jerk about it is not going to get anywhere. Because there are really people out there who experience gender dysphoria. For different reasons, but they're out there. And to simply disregard them as, as kooks or crazy is not going to get us anywhere. We need to show love and compassion. Number two, we've got to be educated. You're not living in 1750 when there's no communication and where people are more grounded in reality than we are today. We're living in the virtual world. We've got to know what we believe as Christians and we've got to keep up with these things so we can talk sensibly about it without looking like blithering idiots or fundamentalists. 
And then I think, if possible, from that, our education to be able to engage in rational discussion. Now, I doubt that rational discussion about this can really exist, to be honest with you. It just ends up being more screaming, yelling, and emotion. But at least we've got to give it a shot. And so we pray when we do that, but we've got to be anchored in reality and what we believe. So, this is probably not what y'all bargained for tonight, more of a philosophical discussion. But these are the things that we have got to understand, and I'm convinced of it, if we're going to be able to convince anybody or at least speak intelligently in the gender debate, whether it be philosophy, theology, politics, sociology, whatever it is. So what I like to do is close like a breather and then allow some questions and answers. I just want to add one more point to our discussion when it comes to how we can best evangelize and, and, and promote a proper understanding of the world and of the body and sexuality and gender, uh, as talked about a little bit later on after the class, the best way to do it is by living it. If you live the reality of the body, if you live femininity, masculinity, uh, and to do it joyfully and truthfully, self-gift, um, and proper relationship, that is what is going to change people. Not necessarily reason, but that lived example, particularly a lived example of holiness and what the body and what reality really is, perceiving mystery, living uh, with holiness surrounding you, and, and that gift of self, that is what is going to change minds and hearts, is us, all of us, living this out in our own lives.